Now we ask you to find a seat, retain the seat for the remainder of the service, and turn to the 90th Psalm, Psalm 90. It is the psalm we just sang a moment ago, Psalm 90. There was a Peanuts cartoon strip, and it showed Charlie Brown having a conversation with Linus. And Charlie Brown has a worried little look on his bald head. And he puts his hands to his head, and he says, Life is just too much for me, Linus. I've been confused ever since I was born. He said, It seems like we just get thrown into life way too fast. We're not prepared. That's the trouble. We're not prepared. And Linus, looking back at Charlie Brown, said, What did you want, a warm-up first? Now, we know we don't get to warm-up first. There's no dress rehearsal in life. You get one shot at it, and then it's over. And when it is over, what will they say about you? If you could read, perhaps, your own obituary, what might the words be that describe your life? Can you imagine what it would be like to actually open the paper and find your obituary? Well, there was a man who actually had that opportunity. His name was Alfred Nobel. True story. And one day he was looking through the newspaper, and there in the obituary section was his name. He just found out he died. Of course, this was a great surprise to him. He didn't even know he was sick. It said that he had died, but but what really got his attention is what he was remembered for. Alfred Nobel, said the obituary, the man who invented dynamite. And it was such a shock to him because he thought, of all the things to be remembered for, I am remembered for something so destructive to mankind. Reading that obituary so shocked Alfred Nobel that he decided, I'm going to change my life. And he went on to develop what became known as the Nobel Peace Prize, the prize awarded to people who make great strides in promoting world peace. How long will you live? Well, you don't know the answer to that question, do you? It might be a day, might be a year, might be 20 years or more, but we just don't know. The Bible says it is appointed For every man wants to die. You have an appointment with death. It's an appointment you'll keep. If you're late for every other one, you'll be on time for that one. Perhaps you've seen the slogan that says, it's a Nike slogan, Life is short, play hard. I've entitled this message, Life is short, pray hard. Because it's the psalm or the prayer of somebody who understands the brevity of life, the frailty of man, and he asks God for wisdom to live his life in the light of those truths. The 90th psalm, if you look at the beginning and see the name attached to it, we see that it's a, a psalm written by Moses. So this is the oldest psalm written. It predates David, Korah, the sons of Asaph. This is written by, it says, Moses, the man of God. This is the only psalm that he wrote in the book of Psalms. Though he wrote other poetry, we know that he wrote a song to be sung after the children of Israel went through the Red Sea on dry land and they were excited about God giving them victory. He wrote another poem just before he climbed Mount Nebo and died. But this is a poem that is ascribed or a psalm that is ascribed to Moses. It is a somber kind of a psalm in one sense. It's somebody who understands life. 
And so in reading the 90th Psalm, we would wonder what exactly happened or what were the circumstances that led Moses to writing this. Most scholars believe that it was written in view of Numbers chapter 20. A series of blows happened in Moses' life that shook him to the core, that made him understand life. He understood life is short, God takes sin seriously, I must take God seriously. Or to put it in the New Testament framework, life is short, death is sure, sin the cause, Christ the cure. And these are the themes that emerge in the 90th Psalm. Well, what were those events in Numbers chapter 20? There were three of them. Number one, the death of Miriam. The death of Miriam. A good, close associate with Moses, though she had her moments of rebellion. She was the leading female figure in the exodus of the children of Israel leaving Egypt. She dies. Secondly, Moses is asked to talk to the rock that water might come forth. Instead, he beats the rock, misrepresenting God. And God says, Moses, because of that, I will not let you into the promised land. So the very dream of occupying the land that he had for 38 years, he's now judged for. And thirdly, Aaron dies, all in that same chapter. Aaron, his fellow leader, the one that he had been ministering with for so many, many years, he now dies, and the nation of Israel mourns for an entire month. So with that in mind, and there's another thing that's happening as well, not only the death of Miriam, the death of Aaron, the judgment on Moses' own life, but it says an entire generation of the children of Israel that did not believe that God would bring them into the land, the whole generation is dying off in the desert. And with that in mind, Moses writes the 90th Psalm. Psalm 90, and we'll go through it a few verses at a time, has some main themes. Number one, the eternity of God. Number two, the frailty of man. And number three, the priorities of a man of God. There's some good advice in the form of a prayer that is given also in the psalm. Let's look at the first two verses where we get the eternity of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What a great way to start. God has been God in every generation. When I was growing up as a teenager, we used a phrase quite a bit. Perhaps some of you will even remember it. The generation gap. We made a big deal of the generation gap. We made a big deal of not trusting people over 30, while they, it seemed, didn't trust many people under 30. We we talked about this huge gap culturally, socially. I found, however, that the generation gap disappears when those two generations know God. Friday night I was in San Jose, California for the opening night of the Billy Graham crusade in that area. And I watched, as I've watched on so many of his crusades, the people come forward as Billy turns and says, and I want you to come. And boy, do they come. Young and old grandfathers and grandmothers, middle-aged parents and young children all coming together. And as I looked at that crowd, all the different ages, I thought, what generation gap? Look at them. They both know Jesus. They all know Jesus. They're coming on the same level ground. The gospel levels it. 
Now, why is that? Simply because God is there for every generation and before every generation. And when that generation dies, there'll be a new group of people, but God will be the same for that generation. So God is pictured here as historically. It says that He is God in all generations. He's viewed creatively. It says before the mountains were brought forth or God created the earth and eternally from everlasting to everlasting. Literally, from the vanishing point past to the vanishing point in the future. God is always there. Moses has a very high view of God. The kind of view that I find many people do not have. A lot of people have a very small view of God. At least the humanist views man as big and can maintain his own lot and manage his own destiny. We make a big deal about ourselves while people in the Bible make a big deal about God and they push man down to the proper perspective. Moses does that. God is eternal. Man is temporal and frail. Princeton University once had as one of its professors in the Divinity School, Robert Dick Wilson. And uh, one evening, the professor went to visit the chapel, Miller Chapel on the campus, because one of his former students was coming there to preach. And Robert Dick Wilson wanted to hear him. It had been 12 years since that student graduated, and the old professor made his way into the chapel to listen to his former student preach. And after he preached, Professor Wilson went up to him and said, If you ever come back again, I will not come to hear you preach, because I only come once. I'm glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be like. And the former student, befuddled at this, asked the good professor to explain what he meant. And he said, well, some men have little God. And they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. And then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God, he said, and God will bless your ministry. He smiled, shook his hand, said, God bless you, and walked away. God will bless your ministry, he said, because you have a big God. Moses was a big godder. Moses' God could create the heavens and the earth. Moses' God was eternal from generation to generation. And Moses' God could manage Moses' life. He had a big God. But I love that term, dwelling place. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. For 38 years, the children of Israel wandered around in what? Tents. They had no dwelling place. They had no permanent home. They had no restroom and shower and garage and kitchen with the refrigerator. They were always on the move. They had been in Egypt as slaves for 38 years, wandering through the desert and on their way into the promised land. It's as if he's saying, God, this nation, this homeless, vagabond, nomadic people, you're the dwelling place. You're the permanent home. You've always been there wherever we have been. The term dwelling place in Hebrew could be translated, I found out, den, D-E-N. Lord, you've been our den. 
I love that. You go into some people's home, and they have what they call a formal living room. And then they have the den. That's the family room. It's not always a good sign when you're invited in the formal living room. It's kind of cold and formal. It's just right. Then there's the den. It's the family room. It's where people are informal and warm. You get to hang out with the family. Speaks of intimacy. You have been our dwelling place, our den. Are you at home with God? How at ease are you with God? Can you hang with the Almighty? Is it an intimate relationship? Or do you have to speak of God as, well, the good Lord? Or is He your Lord, my Jesus? We're in the family room together. Of course, the great truth here also is, if God is your dwelling place, He'll invite you to His dwelling place forever. Think of it. Moses wandered for 38 years in tents, couldn't wait to get in the land. And God said, you can't come in the land. Your dream is broken. However, Moses would soon be in God's eternal dwelling place because it seems that he wrote this toward the end of his life. I found out that uh, 20% of the American public relocates every year. That's a huge chunk of the population that shifts. Why do we move so much? Because we're looking for just the right spot, the right job, the right place to raise our children, the, the high quality of life, better than what we have now. Let me encourage you to think longer term than that. And if you haven't yet, receive Jesus Christ into the home of your heart. And he'll invite you into his home when life is over with. Now Moses, because he had such a big God, we notice in verse 2 that he had no problem with creation. After all, Moses wrote Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Moses had no problem with God creating uh, the, the, the very statement that many people today would have problems with. Well, I don't believe in creation. I believe that we are a highly evolved animal, that we came eventually from the sun beating on the freckle of a tadpole, and uh, after millions of years of these processes, here we are, voila. Moses had no problem, if God is indeed that big, to say, light be and light was, earth be and light and earth was, to create. Not just a big animal. Um, there was once in a zoo an orangutan that had two books in his hand. Of course, this is just a cute story, but it illustrates a point. In his right hand was the Bible, and his left hand was Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. And uh, this orangutan was looking intently at both of them. He'd stare at the Bible a while. And he'd look over here at the origin of the species for a while, and he'd go back and forth. Well, a visitor walking in the zoo would, was surprised to see an orangutan with a book, two books. It looked like he was reading. And so the visitor came up to the cage and sort of looked around to see if anybody was looking. And he thought, oh, what the heck, I'll try to talk to the orangutan. And he said, excuse me, can you really read? The orangutan looked up and said, well, of course, you think I'm stupid? And the guy was kind of shaken by it, and he said, Well, do you understand what you're reading? The orangutan furrowed his eyebrows and said, I am confused. You see, this book says that I'm my brother's keeper, while this book says I'm my keeper's brother. <laughs> I don't know which to believe. Moses would believe the first option. 
I'm my brother's keeper, for God created us in the image of God. And from the foundation of the earth, God is from everlasting to everlasting. The Bible is full of such big godders who had no problem with creation. Well, that's the eternity of God. In the next few verses, we have the frailty of man in contrast. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men, literally return to the dust. Speaking of the frailty of life, you return to dust. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past. Like a watch in the night, you carry them away like a flood. They are all like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. What is your great life like? Grass. It looks so beautiful in the morning, and by the evening, it's burnt. It's over. As Lucille Harper so aptly put it, time, she said, is a great healer but a poor beautician. It's true, isn't it? The longer we as grass look in the mirror, the older we get, we realize the truth. That the years aren't always kind to our face. And it puts it in perspective. God is eternal. We are temporal and we are frail. Now in the Middle East, it's not uncommon for one evening the rain to come through the land and you wake up the next day and there's this sheet of green grass everywhere. By the afternoon, it's brown. It's yellowed. It's burned because the sun comes out to scorch it. Charles Spurgeon, in looking at this analogy of man being like grass talking about how short our life is, said the human life is like grass. He said, sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. We grow up, we live a short period of time, and then it's over. Now, to get a kid to understand this is difficult, right? For a child sees time as this long, long stretch. I've got my whole life to live. And a week to a little child is so long. I've got to wait a week? That's an eternity. Isn't it funny how time changes the older you get? I mean, a year is like, well, so what? I mean, it's going to happen in a year. I better get ready. Now, time seems to change and elude us. We think of a thousand years as a long time. It's not a long time. The United States hasn't even seen a quarter of that in history. Hasn't even been around quite 250 years. In school, our teachers talked about time in a line. They would draw a line on the chalkboard and they put points along the line to represent time. So you have one point that represents birth. You have another point that uh, is marriage. Uh, The other point represents having children. The next point represents bankruptcy. And the final point represents death. That's the lifespan of a person. So we have grown up thinking of time as a line. And we go, oh, well, then eternity must just mean the line goes on in both directions. It's this eternal drawing of a line. No, it's not. Eternity is the removal of the line. There is no line. There is no time and space continuum. It was Einstein who discovered that time was relative. It varies with mass, with gravity, etc. God doesn't live in the time and space continuum. Isaiah said, our God is lofty. He inhabits all of eternity. That's the realm he lives in. 
So put in perspective, God is eternal a thousand years. It's like an afternoon tea. It's like a watch in the night. We are like grass. We grow up and we wither. Let's get a little perspective. Let's draw a model. Now, not everyone will agree with the model because not everybody agrees with how long man has been on the earth. But just for the sake of perspective, let's take the history of humanity and compact it into a 50-year span. What would it look like? Like this. The first 45 years, nothing significant happened. Five years ago, man began to have some primitive writing and communication. Two years ago, Christianity came into being. Five months ago, the most important invention the world has ever known, the printing press, was invented. Twenty days ago, Ben Franklin proved that lightning and electricity were the same thing. Nineteen days ago, the telephone was invented. Eighteen days ago, a couple of high school dropouts invented the airplane. Ten days ago, a radio came into being. Five days ago, a television set was invented. And five minutes ago, jet airplanes were first used. That's a whole different perspective when you look at time that way. So to God, this entire millennium, a thousand years, big deal. We go, it is a big deal. We're, we're arriving at the year 2000. God says, oh, another night. Now, the frailty of man is complicated with another issue. It's all part of it, but it's complicated with this other issue. It's in verse 7 down to verse 11. We have been consumed by your anger, by your wrath. We are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years. That's the average. If by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. In other words, the older you get, it's not a pretty picture. There's usually more pain, more complications. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. Man's problem is not just brevity, but frailty due to a three-letter word, sin. He mentions that here. Man's problem, the root of his problems, is sin. And sin is passed on from generation to generation, just like God can be the shelter in every generation. Sin is passed on from Adam to all members of the human race, and that is the problem. It's a disease called sin. Maybe when Moses wrote this, he was thinking of Adam and Eve in the garden. After all, he he wrote about it in Genesis. Or maybe Moses was thinking about his own sin of hitting that rock instead of just talking to it. And the judgment that fell upon him. Or maybe he was thinking of this whole generation of Israelites who were dying off in the desert. Imagine what the scene was like every morning in Moses' tent. As somebody came to report the obituaries, the casualties who had died and were being buried while they were speaking. And so God was the shelter. But at the same time, there was this death that was all around him. Point is this. Sin always leads to death. For Moses, it was the death of a dream, the death of coming into the land, the future. For others, sin means the death of a marriage, the death of a relationship, the end of their health. Ultimately, sin leads to what the Bible calls the second death, eternal separation from God. So the root of man's problem is not just we don't live long, but 
the frailty of life due to sin. And then, beginning in verse 12, we have the priorities of a man of God. By the way, uh, verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible is not verse 1 in our Bible. Verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible is the superscription, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. That's verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. What a great distinction. You know, I, I think of all the titles a person could have, man of God or woman of God, M-O-G-W-O-G. What a great title that is. Not Ph.D., but man of God would be the greatest title of distinction anyone could have. In the Bible, a handful of people are given this. Moses is one of them. It means a person who represents God and represents the message of God accurately. Well, what does Moses pray and what does he advise? Three things. Number one, life is short. Make it count. Life is short. Make it count. That's his advice. That's his prayer. Verse 12. So teach us, he says, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Or to put it in another way, since time flies, it's up to you to be the navigator. Time is short. Make it count. It's interesting to me that Moses said we should be counting days, not years. That we should live our lives in terms of days, smaller chunks rather than larger chunks. And at the end of those days, we should have gained a heart of wisdom. We should know how to live wisely rather than foolishly. And so as I was reading this psalm, coming back from San Jose the other day, I decided to number my days. I thought, how many days have I been alive? Would you believe it? I am 15,394 days old today. You can say happy birthday. Thank you very much. That's a long time in terms of days, isn't it? How many days do we have left? Well, I can count my days past, but I can't count my future days. I don't know. But listen to how one author puts it. He says, if you are 35 years of age today, you have 500 days left to live. You say, now wait a minute, how is that possible? Well, listen to the author. He said, if you subtract time spent sleeping, working, personal matters, hygiene, odd chores, medical matters, eating, traveling, and miscellaneous time stealers, in the next 36 years, you'll have the equivalent of only 500 days left to spend as you wish. Not much time left. Life is short, make it count. And really, that's the the issue. The issue isn't counting the days as much as making the days count. You might ask, well, how do I do that? How do I make my days count? A few simple suggestions. First of all, Recognize life is short. There's no guarantees. You plan for next week and next year. You may not have one. You may not live 20, 30 years. You may live a week. There's no guarantees at all. A graphic example, the world has been talking so much about it. The princess of Wales, Diana, snuffed out of life so suddenly, so young. The world thought, oh, she has many years to live. And then we get the report, she's dead. Across the globe, Mother Teresa, much older, but she dies too. Life is over. I remember hearing a poem once that stuck. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Short life. Recognize life is short. Next, take life in smaller chunks. 
Take life in smaller chunks. Not months, millennia, years, but days. You see, rather than bemoaning the fact, I've wasted my life, how about this? How am I doing today? How is my day measuring up? And then finally, live each day for God. That is, when you get up in the morning, immediately, first thing out of bed, commit your day to God. Get off to a good start. Lord, I'm flexible. You're the boss. I've got a certain amount of plans, but do what you want. My day is yours. And and think this thought. Perhaps today is my last day. What if this is the last day I'll ever live on the earth? I need to have a light touch then, don't I? Remember the parable Jesus gave of the rich fool who didn't plan right? And there he was. He had, he had so much wealth and he said, What will I do? All my barns are full. I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns to get more stuff. God said, You fool. Tonight your soul is required of you. Then whose will those things be that you have gathered? Light touch. You're passing through. Let's imagine you were flying on an airplane from one destination to another. You stopped in an airport to change airlines, change planes, and uh, you had about an hour before your next plane took off, and you walk with your carry-on bag into the restroom, and um, as you are in the restroom, you're suddenly arrested by the fact that the decor is ugly. And you think, man, this paint is bad. The choice of wallpaper is way off. Uh, I wish they would have asked me about the tile. This just won't do. And and immediately, you you set about redecorating. How foolish. Why? Because you don't live there. You are just in transit. Well, this earth is just a transit lounge. This isn't where we're going to stay. Life is short. Our days are few. We should live each day for God rather than getting tied down here. So, life is short, make it count. The second piece of advice in Moses' prayer, God's love is available, so make it real. God's love is available, make it real. Verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us in the years which we have seen evil. Now that's the New King James Version. The NIV is a little bit clearer when it says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Now Moses had seen destruction and death and judgment. And he says, Lord, satisfy us with your unfailing love. You know that nothing can satisfy the human spirit except the love of God, things won't satisfy you. Relationships won't satisfy you. More hobbies, more activities will burn you out, but the love of God will satisfy you. Now, Moses believed that God loved his people Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. He cared for them for 38 years in the desert. So if you were to ask Moses, does God love Israel? He'd say, certainly. But then he would probably say, But I'm not sure that Israel always knows that. I'm not sure that Israel is always satisfied by the experience of God's love. It's one thing for God to love you. It's another thing to know it. God loves each and every one of you today, but not all of you know it. Not all of you walk in it. 
Jude, in his little book before the book of Revelation, said, keep yourselves in the love of God. Isn't that an interesting commandment? You have a responsibility, he said, to keep yourself in the love of God. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that um, you keep yourself in a position that God will always love you. I'm going to be good so that God will look at me and go, oh, you're so good, I love you. You can't earn God's love, can you? It's unconditional. God loves you no matter what. But though God loves us no matter what, we don't always experience it. Listen to how the Living Bible translates that verse in Jude. Always stay within the boundaries where the love of God can reach you. If you walk out after service in the sun with an umbrella, is the sun shining? Yes. Do you feel the warmth on your face? No, because you have a shelter, an umbrella. Something is in between the sun and your skin. It might be shining. You're not experiencing the benefits, the warmth of it. We can have in our lives umbrellas of sin, separation to keep us from experiencing the love of God. In Isaiah, God said, My hand isn't too short to save. My ear isn't too heavy to hear. But your sins have separated between you and your God. The children of Israel did this. God loved them, but they didn't believe that God loved them enough to take them into the promised land. So they rebelled and said, We're too afraid. We won't go. They didn't keep themselves in the love of God. The prodigal son did this with his own father. He ran away from home and squandered all of his money and ate pig's food in a foreign country, it says. His father loved him, but he wasn't experiencing his father's love. Judas Iscariot did this. Did Jesus love Judas? Oh, he did. Was Judas experiencing the love of Jesus Christ? Not at all. Think of the contrast, the Last Supper. John has his head leaning on the bosom, on the chest of Jesus. He had kept himself in the love of God. Judas is over there on the other side of the table conspiring to leave early and sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. One was keeping himself in the love of God. One was not. God loved them both equally. Now, some of you, perhaps, aren't quite sure God loves you. You would say, I am a Christian. I believe in God. But I don't know if God loves me as much as the Bible says. Or you might say something like this. Yes, theologically, I believe God loves me. But I don't know if he likes me. Well, God said in Jeremiah, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God loves you, but we don't always see it, do we? We're looking down. Michelangelo, the great artist who painted the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican, and I've admired his work when I saw it, was on a scaffold upside down facing the ceiling for a long, long time. So long was he up there that when he would come down and take his breaks, his neck was so stiff, it was hard to look down, and his eyes hurt. It pained his eyeballs to look at the ground. He'd been looking up so long. I think we look down so long so often, and we see the world's ails, and we see the problems in our lives, and we fail to look up. It hurts. God loves me? Oh, I don't know if I can hang with that. Thirdly, and we'll close with this, God has work to do. Make it yours. Make it your own. Make God's work your work. Verse 16. Let your work appear to your servants. Show your glory to their children 
And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord, we want to see your work and we want to do your work. Establish it. May your work be our work. You know, this is a sign of maturity as a Christian. You can always tell a mature Christian when the eyes get off of self and onto God's work. What does God want me to do? It's always a sign of maturity. It's uh, sort of like being a, a, a son whose father wants him to be part of the family business. He wants the son to grow up enough that dad could actually trust him with enough responsibility to say the family business is yours. And so he grooms his son in the family business. And uh, the son, however, just wants to run around and squander his time and just have fun and have a blast and never get serious. One day the son comes to the father and says, Dad, I quit running around. I'm a part of it. Your business is my business. Let me encourage you, be a part of the family business. Your father has a business. He has a global vision to reach souls of people with his son's love, Jesus Christ. Be a part of that. Get into the family business. You see, folks, God has put you on this earth, and you're on this earth today because God wants you to perform some task, some ministry, to point others to Jesus Christ. That's why. You know how I know that's true? I know it's true because if that wasn't God's plan, if God's plan was simply to put a little smile on your face and give you warm fuzzies and take you to heaven, then he'd make sure that you receive Christ and the moment you do, you drop dead and go right to heaven. Mission accomplished, boom, you go to heaven. But the fact that you haven't gone yet to heaven, it's because he wants you to bring others with you. He has a task for us to perform. Make God's work your work. And what a blast is his work. What God can do through you. Friday night when I was up in San Jose, California with Franklin Graham and his father, Billy, um, it was a special night for me because it was 24 years ago in that city, in a little apartment, that I watched Billy Graham on television and I received Jesus Christ. So here I was in the same city as a pastor of a church and before Billy went out to the platform, I said, You know, Billy, it was 24 years ago in a little apartment a few blocks away that I received Jesus Christ listening to your message broadcast on television. I was in San Jose, and now I've come full circle. And he talked about, and the work that God has done since then in your life. And I thought, yeah, you know, it was special for me to think of all that God had done through my life since then. And just what an awesome privilege it is to carry the banner and the baton of evangelism and teaching the word. So don't just spend your life. Invest your life. Invest your life in something that will outlive you so that the obituary won't just read, he made dynamite. So that you leave a legacy to your children. How do you want your children to remember you? As a man of God? As a woman of God? The only way is to have God establish the work of your hands. Wouldn't it be great to hear the words of Jesus to you as, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord? Wouldn't it be great to hear that? It's like, that's the big payoff. Just those words. Rather than maybe Peter going, you barely made it. The angels were taking bets. (laughs) Don't you want an abundant entrance? 
Well done, good and faithful servant. No, Linus was right. You don't get a chance to warm up first. There are no dress rehearsals. You get one crack at life, and it's over. One chance at life, and it's over. But if you are a big godder, if your God is this God, and God is your dwelling place, your life will be awesome. You can't lose. An American missionary went to India and found an elderly, wrinkled Indian woman with the most beautiful smile, such grace and dignity in her life, and though she was very frail and old, he said, you are such a beautiful woman. And she very candidly said, well, I ought to be. She said, for 74 years, God has been working on me. I ought to be better than I was when I started. God has been working on my life. She had a big God, an eternal God. She knew her life was frail, but she walked with God for that long. Got better. If you're an unbeliever, let me just challenge you. Have you counted your life, your days? Have you taken spiritual inventory of your life? You too have a certain amount of time to live. Hundreds of thousands of people are born every day on this planet. And hundreds of thousands of people leave this planet every day. This earth is sort of like a huge Titanic, isn't it? Revolving in space, delivering hundreds of thousands of souls every day into eternity. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. No warm-ups. No dress rehearsals. What have you done with your time, with your life? God loves you. Sin has messed things up. God has a plan for that. Man needs God. And time is short. And for some of you this morning who have not made a real, genuine, personal commitment to Jesus Christ, you've just relied on what you think about in your head as far as God, or you've been a member of a church, but you've never made a decision to turn from sin and follow Christ, you are accountable for what you heard today. You'll be accountable for this day before God. Are you ready to face God? If not, you want to get ready? Then it's time to make Jesus your Lord and do business with Him. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that as this message has gone out, the message of Your Word, it is unchanging, it is true. We have understood that You love man that you have a plan to deal with man's greatest problem, which is sin. You want to forgive. And God is speaking to your heart, and you're ready to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. You're willing to Christ. You're willing to Christ.